Section 48 of Junior Classics, Volume 5, Stories That Never Grow Old. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Junior Classics, Volume 5, Stories That Never Grow Old, edited by William Patton. Section 48. Guy Mannering, Part 1, retold by Sir Edward Sullivan. The castle of Ylangowen was an old and massive structure situated by the seashores in the southwestern part of Scotland. It has been for many years the dwelling place of a family named Bertram, each of whom had in succession borne the title of the Laird of Ylangowen. They had once been people of wealth and importance in the neighborhood but through the lack of prudence and other misfortunes they had one after another lost much of the greatness and prosperity which had belonged to them in better days one of their number became at last so poor that he could no longer maintain the old family residence so he contented himself with occupying a much smaller house which he had himself built from the windows of which he could still look out on the ancient abode of his forefathers as it dwindled year by year to the condition of a neglected ruin at the time that our story commences one godfrey bertram was the laird of elangowan and the owner of the now diminished estates he was a good-tempered easy-going kind of man and became in consequence very popular with all the poorer people of the district and especially with the gypsies a large number of whom were at all times to be found in the neighborhood his wife had brought him a little money when he married and he and she continued to lead a quiet and not unhappy life in their new home amongst mr bertram's most intimate companions in his retirement was one abel sampson a tall and awkward-looking man with a harsh voice and huge feet who was known to the people around as the dominie he was a man who spoke but little and generally used very long words when he did but he had a kindly and good-natured heart he was for a time the parish schoolmaster at the village of Kippletringen, which was close to Elangowan, and was employed now and then as a kind of clerk by the laird. The village of Kippletringen was situated a little distance from the sea, and although the neighborhood was dignified by the possession of a custom-house, the place was still the favorite haunt of a large body of desperate and determined smugglers, who, it was supposed, were assisted by many of the small shopkeepers of the locality, in disposing of the contraband goods which were surreptitiously brought in from foreign parts one cloudy november evening a young traveller guy mannering by name just came from the university of oxford was making his way with difficulty over the wild and lonely moorland which extended for many miles on the outskirts of the village he had lost the road to kippletringen whither he was bound but was lucky enough to find a guide to conduct him there before he had gone completely astray and late at night he arrived at Godfrey Bertram's house, where he was hospitably welcomed by the owner. Supper was got ready, a good bottle of wine was opened, and the laird and the dominie and Guy Mannering were enjoying themselves comfortably, when the conversation was interrupted by the shrill voice of someone coming upstairs. "'It's Meg Merrily's the gypsy, as sure as I'm a sinner,' said Mr. Bertram, and as the door opened, a tall woman— full six feet high with weather-beaten features and hair as black as midnight stepped into the room her appearance was altogether of so strange a kind that it made mannering start 
After some conversation with the laird, the gypsy woman informed him that she had come to tell the fortune of his little son, who was born that night, and asked to be told the exact hour of his birth. Now Guy Mannering himself, amongst other accomplishments, possessed a knowledge of the stars, and on learning the time at which young Bertram was born, he went outside to study the heavens with a view to foretelling what the future of the child would be. The sky had become beautifully clear, for the rising wind had swept away the clouds with which it had been previously overcast, and the observer was enabled to note carefully the positions of the principal planets from which he made out that three periods of the infant's life would be attended by great danger to him, namely his fifth, his tenth, and his twenty-first year. On the morning following, Mannering strolled out towards the old castle, thinking to himself whether he should tell Mr. Bertram what he had learned from the stars respecting his young son's future life. The castle was merely a ruin at this time, and as he wandered amidst the gloomy remnants of the ancient structure, his attention was arrested by the voice of the gypsy whom he had seen the night before. He soon found an opening in one of the walls through which he could observe Meg Merrilies without himself being seen. She was sitting on a broken stone, in a strange, wild dress, and engaged in spinning a thread drawn from wool of three different colors. She was, at the same time, half singing and half muttering a kind of charm, which seemed to have reference to the child which had been born the night before. And as she finished, Mannering heard her murmur something about the thread of life being three times broken and three times mended and distinctly heard her say, He will be a lucky lad if he lives through it. He was about to speak to the gypsy, when he heard a hoarse voice calling to her in angry tones from outside, and in a moment after, a man, who was apparently a sea captain, came into where Meg Merrilies was seated. He was short in height, but prodigiously muscular, strong and thick-set, with a surly and savage scowl upon his unpleasant features. He spoke with a foreign accent, and upbraided the gypsy for keeping him waiting so long, ordering her with a curse to come and bless his ship before it set out on its voyage. While still addressing the gypsy, he caught sight of Guy Mannering, and was about to draw a weapon against him when she told him that he was a friend of Mr. Bertram's. He then introduced himself to Mannering, and said his name was Derek Hatterack, the captain of the vessel that was lying off the shore. Mannering wished him good day shortly after, and as he saw him embarking in a small boat he was convinced, from his conversation and appearance, that the captain was a smuggler. On returning to the new house at Elangown, Mannering learned from Mr. Bertram that this Dirk Hatterack was the terror of all the excise and custom-house cruisers with which he had many a fierce fight. Before Guy Mannering took his departure from Elangown, Mr. Bertram asked him the result of his studying the stars on the preceding night, and in reply was handed a paper by Mannering, which he was told he should keep in a sealed envelope for five whole years. When the visitor had gone, Mrs. Bertram, the mother of the baby boy, was very anxious to read the paper, for she was a superstitious lady, but after a struggle with her curiosity, she contented herself with making a small velvet bag into which she sewed the paper and the whole was then hung as a charm round the neck of her young child. Time rolled on, and when little Harry Bertram grew to be four years old, 
He was already a great favorite with Dominie Sampson, who had acted as his tutor and was his constant companion. But just about this time, the laird of Elangowan was appointed one of the magistrates of the county. And shortly after his appointment, he began, little by little, to become very unpopular with the gypsies, with whom he had before been such a favorite. He thought it his duty now to punish and exterminate all amongst them who were poachers and trespassers, and caused even the poor beggars at his door to be sent to the workhouse. One tribe of these gypsies, amongst whom Meg Merrilies was a kind of queen, had lived for a long time unmolested in a few huts in a glen upon the estate of Elangowan, at a place called Dernclew. It was a miserable and squalid village, but for all that Mr. Bertram was determined to evict them, and all their poor belongings. He was no doubt doing as the law directed him, but as far as concerned the inhabitants of Dernclew, he was acting with great harshness, for Meg Merrilies had all along shown a strong affection for his boy, little Harry Bertram. The day of eviction came at length, and a large body of men under the direction of Frank Kennedy, a custom-house officer, made their way to the miserable village, and on the gypsies refusing to leave peaceably, proceeded to unroof their cottages and pull down the wretched doors and windows. There was no resistance, and when the work was ended, the now homeless tribe gathered together the remnants of their property and set forth with sullen and revengeful thoughts to look for a new settlement. Mr. Bertram had been some distance from home on the day of the eviction, but on returning in the evening he met the troop of gypsies. Some of the men muttered angry remarks as he passed them on the road, but he thought it best to make no answer. Meg Merrilies had, however, lagged behind the rest, and was standing alone on a high bank above the road as the laird went by. Her dress was even stranger than usual and her black hair hung loose about her, while her dark eyes flashed angrily. She had a light sapling in her hand, and as the laird looked up to where she stood, she said to him, "'Ride your ways, laird of Elangowan. Ride your ways, Godfrey Bertram. This day have ye quenched seven smoking hearths. See if your own fire burn the blither for that. Ye have riven the roof off seven cotter houses, Look if your own roof-tree stand the faster. Ride your ways, Godfrey Bertram. Why do you glower after our folk for? There's thirty hearts there that would have spent their life-blood ere ye had scratched your finger. Yes, there's thirty yonder, from the old wife of an hundred, to the babe that was born last week, that ye have turned out of their houses to sleep with the black cock in the moors. Ride your ways, Elangowan. Our bairns are hanging at our weary backs. Look that your broad cradle at home be the fairer spread up. Not that I am wishing ill to little Harry, God forbid. So ride your way, for these are the last words ye'll ever hear Meg Merrily speak, and this is the last twig that I'll ever cut in the bonny woods of Elangowan. And having uttered this dark and threatening speech, she turned contemptuously from him to join her comrades in misfortune. Meanwhile, the smugglers under their captain, Dirk Hatterack, had been carrying on their lawless trade as usual, and the laird of Elangowan was as determined to put them down as he had been to get rid of the gypsies. He was actively assisted in his endeavors against them by the same Frank Kennedy who had carried out the eviction of Meg Merrilies and her companions, 
and the smugglers had sworn to be revenged upon their enemy on the day that young harry bertram was five years old dirk hadrack's ship was in the bay outside the village of kippletringen a sloop of war in the king's service was pursuing it in order to seize the smuggled goods which were on board when frank kennedy looking out saw that hadrack was likely to escape as he had got his vessel round a headland called warwick point where it was concealed from the sloop unless someone went down to the point and made a signal to the pursuers he accordingly mounted his horse and galloped off on his way he happened to meet little bertram who was walking with the domine and as he had often promised to give the child a ride he took him up on his nag and rode off towards the point shortly afterwards the discharges of several cannon were heard and after an interval a still louder explosion as of a vessel blown up as evening came on mr and mrs bertram were expecting little harry to come home and as he did not return became very uneasy about him after waiting for him in anxiety for some time the news came in that kennedy's horse had come back riderless to its stable all was now bustle at elangowan the laird and his servants rushed away to the wood of warwick but they searched long and in vain for any trace of kennedy or the boy it was already growing dark when a shrill and piercing shout was heard from the seashore under the wood and on hurrying to the place mr bertram was horrified to see the dead body of frank kennedy lying on the beach right under a high precipice of rocks in his wild dismay and terror for his child and remembering the words of meg merrily's the laird hurried away to durnclew hoping to get some news of him from any of the gypsies who might still be lingering round the place he wandered amongst the ruins of the cottages where he found no one although he noticed the remains of a fire in one of the huts after a little one of his servants came running to him and told him to come home at once that mrs bertram was dying half stupefied he went back but only to find that his wife was dead and that a little daughter had been born to him and that his boy was gone the sheriff of the county arrived next morning and opened an inquiry the wood was again searched with the result that traces of a struggle were found near the top of the cliff over the place where kennedy's body was found lying footprints of men and of a small boy were seen here and there witnesses who were examined said that they had seen the smuggler ship grounding and taking fire and finally blowing up with a great explosion but no one could say what had become of its crew the gypsies were suspected and meg merrily's was arrested but when questioned she denied that she had been at the place they found however a cut upon her arm and on removing the handkerchief with which she had bound it it was found to be marked with the name of harry bertram no further evidence could be procured of her guilt and she was at length set free under sentence of banishment from the county for many years after this mr bertram continued to live a solitary and mournful life at elangowan the poor dominie never ceased to blame himself for the loss of the boy as harry was in his charge on the day on which he had disappeared but he still lived with the laird as before and was chiefly employed in teaching bertram's daughter little lucy who was now growing up into a gentle and bonny girl the laird had always been a bad man of business and after his wife's death he got into the hands of a scheming and dishonest attorney named glosson 
who in the end craftily succeeded in making himself rich at the expense of his employer. The debts of the laird became at length so many that the property at Ilangowan had to be mortgaged, and things ultimately went so badly with the poor owner that the men to whom he owed so much money determined to insist on the estate being sold, together with a house and all the furniture. It was rumored too amongst the country folk that Glasson was the man of all others who was most eager to turn the Bertrams out of their house, in order that he might buy the property himself and become the Laird of Elangowan. Now the property in Elangowan had been what is called settled in such a way that it could not be sold if Mr. Bertram had a son living. It was therefore likely to be disposed of very cheap, as no one knew for certain that young Bertram was dead while if he should happen to be alive, there was still a chance of his coming back and claiming the estates. When Glosson the attorney found that there was no more to be got out of his client in the way of money, he commenced openly to show the wickedness of his bad and cruel nature, and the very sight of him became hateful to the unhappy Godfrey Bertram. And so things went on, until Lucy Bertram was seventeen years old, and her father had become a weak and poor old man, and then Glosson determined to play his last card. The estates of Elangowan were advertised to be sold to the highest bidder, and a day was fixed for the auction. Before describing how the sale took place, it will be necessary to tell something of Guy Mannering, who, as will be remembered, had left Elangowan shortly after the day that young Harry Bertram was born. He became a soldier and having served for a long time in India, was appointed colonel of his regiment. His wife and daughter were with him there, and they had become very intimate with a young officer in the same regiment, called Van Beest Brown, who it was supposed had come from Holland, where he had previously been engaged in trade of some kind. Colonel Mannering, for some reason, never cared for Brown, but chiefly because he had foolishly listened to the dishonorable suggestions of a friend, who, for reasons of his own, had secretly poisoned his mind against the young officer. The dislike ripened after some time into an open quarrel, followed by a duel between the colonel and his subaltern, in which, after exchanging shots, Mannering believed he killed his adversary. Mrs. Mannering died shortly after, and the colonel and his daughter returned to England. Now it so happened that Colonel Mannering arrived at the village of Kippletringen a day or two before the time at which the sale of Elangowan was to take place. He was much distressed at hearing the pitiable account that was given to him of his old friend, Godfrey Bertram, and the idea at once occurred to him that he would buy the property himself, and by doing so, help the laird. Accordingly, on the day of the auction, he made his way to Elangowan House, where he was told on inquiry that the old laird was dangerously ill, and was to be found up at the ruined castle in company with his daughter. Thither Colonel Mannering went to look for him. He found old Bertram sitting in an easy chair on the slope beside the castle, with his feet wrapped in blankets, and beside him his daughter and the domine, and a handsome young man whom he did not recognize, but who, he afterwards learned, was a gentleman called Charles Hazelwood, who was deeply in love with Miss Bertram. Mannering was much affected when the old laird failed to remember him, for he had not forgotten his hospitable kindness many years before, on the night when little Harry was born. While he was engaged in conversation with Miss Bertram and her companion, a voice was heard close by, which Lucy at once recognized as that of her father's enemy, Glosson, 
and she sent the domine to keep him away the sound of the voice had however also reached the old man's ears he started up on hearing it and turning toward glossin he addressed him in tones of passion and indignation out of my sight ye viper he said ye frozen viper that i warmed till ye stung me are ye not afraid that the walls of my father's dwelling should fall and crush ye limb and bone were ye not friendless houseless penniless when i took ye by the hand and are ye not expelling me me and that innocent girl friendless houseless and penniless from the house that has sheltered us and ours for a thousand years a few moments after the carriage was announced in which lucy bertram and her father were to leave their home but it was no longer necessary the old laird of Elangowan was so exhausted by his last effort of indignant anger that when he sunk upon his chair he expired almost without a struggle or a groan the sale of the property was then postponed until after the funeral and colonel mannering having done what he could for miss bertram in her unhappy condition left the neighborhood with the intention of returning in time for the adjourned sale for the purpose of buying the estate the appointed hour for the auction at length arrived but colonel mannering had not come back no one had even received a letter from him and in his absence as there was no other bidder the infamous glossin was declared to be the lawful purchaser and the new laird of elangowan at six o'clock that night a drunken post-boy reached the village with a letter from the colonel containing instructions to buy the property it had been delayed on its way and was now no longer of any use poor lucy bertram now found herself an orphan without house or home but the kindness of some neighbors named mcmorlan to some extent assuaged the misery of her position they insisted on her coming to live with them and mr mcmorlan even offered the dominie a clerkship in his establishment where he might still be near his lady pupil to whom in spite of his strange and awkward ways he was devotedly attached for her father's sake when colonel mannering after the death of mr bertram left elangowan with the intention of coming back to buy the property he traveled some distance and after a while came to a post town where he expected some letters he received one letter which displeased him very much from a great friend of his who was living in the north of england mr mervyn by name in whose care he had left his daughter julia mannering when he was starting for kippletringen this letter informed him that miss mannering was being serenaded at night from the lake beside the house by some unknown stranger who had however disappeared before the letter was written on reading this intelligence the colonel hastened at once to mr mervyn's residence having first sent off the instructions in reference to the purchase of elangowan estate which as already said arrived too late the lover who had been serenading julia mannering was in reality the same van beest brown whom she had known in india and with whom her father had fought the duel Colonel Mannering had, however, no idea that Brown was still alive, and the daughter was afraid to tell her father that he was. Captain Brown, as he was now known, was a handsome and gallant young fellow, and having returned to England with his regiment, and being still deeply devoted to Miss Mannering, he had lost no time in making his way to where she was staying, in the house of Mr. Mervyn, her father's friend. When Mannering arrived at Mr. Mervyn's, he said very little about the information which had been the cause of his return, 
but he told his daughter that he had taken a place near Kippletringan called Woodbourne, where he meant to reside for some time. He also told her that she would have a pleasant companion in Lucy Bertram, the daughter of an old friend of his, who was going to stay with them in his new house. Accordingly, as soon as Woodbourne was made ready to receive them, the colonel and his daughter, Julia, took up their residence there, and Lucy Bertram became their guest. Another inmate of the new house was the Dominie, for whom Colonel Mannering had a liking, and who, he knew, could not bear to be parted altogether from Miss Bertram, whose tutor he had been from her earliest days. When the poor half-cracked Dominie heard that he was to be employed as Colonel Mannering's librarian, his joy knew no bounds, and on seeing the large number of old books which were committed to his charge, he became almost crazy with delight and shouted his favorite word prodigious till the roof rung to his raptures after a little time lucy bertram and miss mannering became fast friends but the latter was careful never to say anything to her new companion about her lover captain brown now brown when he found that julia mannering had gone to woodbourne determined to follow her with the purpose of resuming his addresses and he accordingly set out on foot towards the north it was a fine, clear, frosty winter's day when he found himself in the wilds of Cumberland on his way to his destination in Scotland. He had walked for some distance when he stopped at a small public house to procure refreshment. He here fell in with a farmer named Dandy Dinmont, a big rollicking fellow with an honest face and kindly ways, with whom he became friends in a very little time. There was another person, however, in the inn on whom Brown could not avoid repeatedly fixing his eyes, a tall, witch-like woman. It was Meg Merrily's the gypsy, but time had grizzled her raven locks, and added many wrinkles to her wild features. As he looked at her he could not help saying to himself, Have I dreamed of such a figure? As he was asking himself the question, the gypsy suddenly made two strides towards him and seized his hand at the same time saying to him in god's name young man tell me your name and whence you come my name is brown mother and i come from the east indies he answered on hearing his answer she dropped his hand with a sigh and said it cannot be then it cannot be but be what ye will ye have a face and a tongue that puts me in mind of old times as brown took his departure on foot the gypsy looked after him and muttered to herself I must see that lad again. The traveller had gone a considerable distance across the lonely moorland through which his road lay, when his little dog, Wasp, began to bark furiously at something in front of them. Brown quickened his pace, and soon caught sight of the subject of the terrier's alarm. In a hollow a little below him was his late companion, Dandy Dinmont, engaged with two other men in a desperate struggle. In a moment Brown, who was both strong and active, came to the rescue, and after a short fight the two would-be murderers of the farmer were flying for their lives across the heath, pursued by Wasp. Dinmont then took his friend upon his pony, and they succeeded after some time in reaching Charlie's Hope, the farmer's home, where they were welcomed by his wife and a large troop of children. The next few days were spent salmon-spearing and hunting otters on the hills in the neighborhood. One of the huntsmen, of whom there were a large number out, was a dark-featured man, resembling a gypsy in his appearance, and Brown noticed that whenever he approached him he endeavored to hide his face. He could not remember, however, having ever seen the man before. 
but he learned on asking about him that he was a stranger in those parts who had come from the southwest of scotland and that his name was gabriel nothing further was known about him at charlie's hope brown's visit to dandy dinmont was now at an end and he again took the road for woodbourne the residence of julia mannering he had hired a chaise and horses but had not gone far on the wild road to kippletringen when night came on and the snow fell heavily and shortly after to make matters worse the driver missed the way when the horses were unable to proceed any further brown dismounted from the carriage in order to look for a house where he could ask the way and as he wandered through the plantations which skirted the road he saw a light in the distance amongst the trees after traversing a deep and dangerous glen he reached the house from which the light shone it was an old and ruinous building before approaching the door he peeped in through an aperture in the ruined wall and saw in the room inside the figure of a man stretched on a straw bed with a blanket thrown over it he could see that the man was dying a woman clad in a long cloak was sitting by the bedside and moistening at times the lips of the man with some liquid she was singing a low monotonous strain she paused in her singing and brown heard a few deep groans come from the dying man it will not be she muttered to herself he cannot pass away with that on his mind i must open the door brown stood before her as she opened the door and he at once recognized the same gypsy woman whom he had met in the inn a few days before he noticed too that there was a roll of linen about the dying man's head which was deeply stained with blood wretched woman who has done this exclaimed brown and the gypsy answered they that were permitted and she added after a few moments he's dead now sounds of voices at a distance were now heard they are coming said she to brown you are a dead man he was about to rush out when the gypsy seized him with a strong grasp here she said here be still and you are safe stir not whatever you see or hear and nothing shall befall you she made him lie down among a parcel of straw and covered him carefully and then resumed her song brown though a soldier and a brave one was terrified as he lay in his hiding place peeping out through the straw he saw five rough-looking men come in who seemed to be gypsies and sailors they closed round the fire and commenced to drink holding consultation together in a strange gibberish which he could not altogether understand whenever the gypsy woman addressed them she spoke angrily to them and more than once she called them murderers they however did not seem to mind her they continued drinking and talking for a considerable time but all that brown could make out was that there was someone whom they were going to murder they also referred to a murder committed some twenty years before in which their dead companion had had a hand after some time spent in this way one of the party went out and brought in a portmanteau which brown at once recognized as the one he left in the chaise they ripped it open and after examining the contents which included all the owner's ready money with the exception of a trifling sum in his pocket they divided the whole amongst them then they drank more and it was not until morning that they left the building when they left they carried the dead body with them no sooner were they well outside that meg merrilies got up from where she had been pretending to be asleep and told brown to follow her instantly 
Brown obeyed with alacrity, feeling that he was already out of reach of danger when the villains had gone out. But before leaving, he took up a cutlass belonging to one of the five and brought it with him in the belief that he might yet have to fight with them for his life. The snow lay on the ground as he and the gypsy came out, and as he followed her, he noticed that she chose the track the men had taken so that her footprints might not be seen. After a while, however, she turned from the track and led the way up a steep and rugged path under the snow-laden trees, and on reaching a place some distance farther on, she pointed out the direction of Kippletringen, and told her companion to make what speed he could. Brown was entirely at a loss to make out the reason the gypsy had for taking such an interest in preserving his life from her comrades, and was even more puzzled by her conduct when she took an old purse from her pocket before parting and gave it to him. She said as she handed it to him, Many's the arms your house has given Meg and hers, and Brown, as he thanked her for her kindness, asked her how he could repay the money she had given him. I have two boons to crave, answered the gypsy, speaking low and hastily. One is that you will never speak of what you have seen this night. The other, when I next call for you, be it in church or market, at wedding or at burial, meal-time or fasting, that ye leave everything else and come with me. That will do you little good, mother, answered Brown. But twill do yourself much good, replied Meg Merrilies. I know what I am asking, and I know it has been the will of God to preserve you in strange dangers, and that I shall be the means to set you in your father's seat again. So give your promise, and mind that you owe your life to me this blessed night. When Brown had promised, she parted from him, and was soon out of sight. The young soldier could come to no other conclusion but that the woman was mad, and having in this way solved the mystery to his own satisfaction, he strode quickly on through the wood in search of the high road to Kippeltringen. He reached the village at length, and engaged a room at the Gordon Arms, a comfortable inn kept by a Mrs. McCandlish. On opening the purse which the gypsy had given him, he was astonished to find that it contained money and jewels worth about a hundred pounds. He accordingly entrusted it to the landlady of the inn for safe keeping. End of section forty eight.